Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Throughout Donald Trump's presidency, David Frum has emerged as one of Trump's most relentless and incisive critics from the conservative side. Through his articles for The Atlantic, his on-air commentary, and his widely followed Twitter account, Frum has debunked Trump's claims, excoriated his boorish style, and criticized his policies. In 2018, he expanded his critique into a book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, and now, in 2020, he's come out with a sequel, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. In late May, just as Americans were first taken to the streets in protest over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, David Frum spoke to me on the phone about his new book. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Is the market for this book conservative readers who maybe are looking for an alternative? Or do you have a broader audience in mind for this? The book is dedicated to the conservatives, libertarians, and republicans of never Trump. So I, I do hope to find a conservative audience. I, I think the Trump project is going to end in, well, it's, it is already ending in calamity. And I imagine it will, I expect it will end in political defeat as well. And at that point, there will be a big project. How do you revive center-right politics? And here are some ideas to do it. I am concerned about the widening divides in modern societies, not just between rich and poor, the divide that always grabs our attention, um, but between rural and urban, between men and women. At this point in the United States, I think the same is true in Canada, that people under 30 are more likely to live alone, apart from each other than at any time in the history of statistics. That, that, that's not good for anybody, and it's certainly not good for the stability of society. So I, when I talk about the planet and the employment situation, what I'm looking for Yes, I think it's really important to deal with the threat of, of climate change. This pandemic has reminded us about how things that are just over the horizon can strike with catastrophic impact. And the climate issue could be like that. It may not be the gradual warming that people project. It may be a gradual warning to the point where it becomes a sudden warming. It's also true that many of the solutions to climate change have the effect or could have the effect of strengthening job growth in rural America in rural parts of any country, making employment opportunities more available to non-credentialed men, the people who are most left behind by the modern economy. And so you could not only deal with the climate challenge, but you can deal with the employment stability challenge. A lot of your ideas sound a lot like what I heard from Andrew Yang when I was covering the New Hampshire campaign swing. You're borrowing a lot of ideas from both sides of the partisan spectrum here, aren't you? Public policy is, is not a zone for enormous originality. There are only so many solutions to problems. And if you come up with one that no one's ever thought of before, it's probably not a very good idea. Oh, I meant that as a compliment. I loved Andrew Yang's platform. So I, I meant that in a, <laughs> in a spirit of praise. <laughs> um, I think Andrew Yang, what was interesting, I think what excited him was he was somebody who did take a look at things with a clean sheet of paper and said, OK, well, if, if I didn't have like a lot of legacy connections to previous policies. You know, if I did, if I weren't responsible to, you know, the past 30 years of my party history, what would I be saying now? 
one of the things that the Trump presidency is, has been all about is this last spasm of baby boomer cultural warfare. Um, I, I think it's pretty obvious when you listen to Donald Trump that 1972 is more real to him than you know, 2022 is real to him. And as we were seeing with these disturbances in Minneapolis and other places in the wake of this terrible police killing, that he responds to that with the instincts of half a century ago. And it's time for things to be new. You wrote an amazing piece for Atlantic Magazine that I still cite as I think one of the most prophetic. Uh, it was back in 2016. I think the title was The Great Republican Revolt. Yeah. And you talked about the internal class war, not just in American society, but within the Republican Party itself. And you pointed out in a way that I think a lot of people didn't want to hear that the party itself is a coalition of wealthy people and rank and file working people who often have very different interests. Mm -hmm. Wealthy people love having low wage labor available to put up their drywall. The rank and file members, not so much. When you go back to 2016 and look at how you predicted a lot of this, is there anything you would change? You mean other than selling my stock market portfolio immediately in advance of the pandemic strike? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I meant less self-serving aspects. <laughs> and again, I talked about Andrew Yang before. What I liked about Andrew Yang's campaign is that he refused to bash Trump. And, and Yang would say, Trump will be gone one day. Let's talk about the things that led to Trump as opposed to Trump. I will remember, I remember um, a conversation I had during the 2016 campaign with someone I was acquainted with who was um, very involved in the Trump campaign. And this person said, look, David, you have been talking since 2005 about the need for a less plutocratic Republican Party. You've, you've been talking for a long time about how destabilizing mass immigration is to modern democracies. Uh, Donald Trump is talking about a lot of those same things. Why aren't you a supporter? And I, I said to this person over lunch, the reason I was talking about those things was because I saw Donald Trump coming and wanted to stop him. It would not be, the goal is not to help him. The goal is to prevent him. Um, and th these things that you see as opportunities, I saw as risks. Uh, so in, in the book and in many other articles, I've talked about how excessive immigration has been a challenge to democratic stability, not only in the United States, but all through the developed world. The immigration policies have been driven by economic considerations above all without under, understanding or accepting that the economies that may need immigration the most are not always the societies that can cope with it best. And that when you have to choose, you need to put the stability of your society ahead of uh, the demands of your labor market. I worried as, as well about the um, extraordinary concentration of economic opportunity, not just in a few hands, but in a few places. The great cities, uh, the knowledge centers, the university towns, this is where job creation is happening, not only in the United States, but in Canada and in Great Britain and France. Um, and more and more of the country is presented with the choice, move uh, or fall behind. That's a, that's a problem. And while that some people do to some degree have to move. Uh, it can't be the answer that everybody moves and that you leave vast parts of your country completely empty while moving people to cities where they can't afford to buy houses or rent apartments. I saw this coming. I worried about it, but I don't see that as vindication. I see that as this is a, a job that we now have to really double down on because we have at least had a taste of what the nemesis could be if we make the wrong choices. Let's look at the immigration issue from the Democratic perspective, because as I mentioned, I spent some time in New Hampshire following around some of the Democratic candidates, and pretty much anything promising 
more aid, more money, more resources to immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, was an applause line at these events. You point out, there's an interesting statistic I didn't know until I read your book, 93% of Republicans oppose government-funded health care to illegal immigrants. Okay, that makes sense. 40% of Democrats also oppose government-funded health care to undocumented immigrants. How can the Democrats really seize the day, or how can any sensible person seize the day, if you've got applause lines on one side saying, throw these people in cages, and applause lines on the other side saying, let's treat these people as if there's no distinction between citizenship and non-citizenship? A challenge for successful politicians is to remember that the kinds of people who attend Democratic meetings in Iowa and New Hampshire in the early days of, of an election. The kinds of people who are highly online are not actually the people who will decide elections. Elections are decided by people who are less strongly attached to the political system, less motivated, less less partisan. And true professionals can keep in mind both the room in front of them and the larger electorate they're going to need to speak to later. I think that's one of the reasons why Joe Biden did emerge as the Democratic nominee, um, is that he was uh, liberal enough, but he wasn't woke. And he understood that wokeness is not where the country is, and certainly not even where the Democratic Party is. Uh, the Democratic Party electorate is made up. I mean, yes, the left is important to the Democratic Party, but uh, it's also a coalition of people who are more center-minded. And especially in the Trump era, the Democratic Party has owed a lot of its recent success, look at the elections of 2018, to Republican-leaning people, especially women, who are put off by Donald Trump, but don't want to sign up for every element of the agenda that uh, Bernie Sanders would advocate. Tell me about what happened in Kentucky in 2019, because you focus on it as a sort of microcosm of disruptive political events that could happen. Right. Well, Kentucky is ground zero for Trump politics. It's the home state of Mitch McConnell. It's a state where Donald Trump is enormously popular. It is a state that is heavily white, uh, receives very few immigrants, and that doesn't have big cities. Tennessee is already beginning to shift because Nashville is emerging as an important knowledge center. A lot of health research takes place in Nashville. Uh, Kentucky is not like that. Kentucky is much more, uh, has smaller centers and a less strong university system. So it should be the centerpiece for Trump politics. And indeed, they elected a man named Matt Bevin as governor in 2015, who was a very Trumpy governor. I mean, he's more focused and disciplined than Trump and a little bit more of a purely ideological Republican, but the same kind of appeal. Matt Bevin then proceeded to take an axe to the state's Medicaid program. But Kentucky, although very conservative voting, is a very poor state. And the whitest parts of Kentucky in the southeast corner near the old coal country, those are the poorest parts of the state. And their Medicaid dependency was very, very heavy in those places among white people as well as as well as minorities. Uh, and so Bevin ended up touching off an explosion of anti-Republican voting that elected a Democratic governor in the state of Kentucky in 2019. It's a warning to Republicans of the power of the health care issue, just as you were saying a moment ago, that Republicans missed the feeling among their voters about immigration. They also missed the feeling about their voters about health care. They've been determined to dismantle the, the Affordable Care Act, dismantle the extension of health care under Barack Obama without putting anything in its place, not remembering that their own voters are dependent on Medicaid, the healthcare program for the poor, benefit from the other provisions of the Affordable Care Act. You dedicate some of your book to women, and you talk about some of the truly horrendous, sexist things that Trump has said. Who would vote for Hillary? She can't even please her husband. I mean, just like the sort of stuff that if we heard 
a middle school student saying it, we would reprimand them because it's, it's so disgusting. And yet, what explains that conservative women just, you go on social media and they are some of the most obsessive defenders of this guy. Do we misunderstand women? I think we, we misunderstand Twitter. Look, we, 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 we've all seen the movies where our band of heroes are facing a much larger army and someone will say, um, all right, well, you all circle around the back and I will stay, stay here and make a big noise and make them think that there's a giant army in front of them. That's what Twitter is. You know, how many people does it take? How many human beings with names and addresses does it take to make a big noise on Twitter? A hundred? No, but the the voting numbers are also there for conservative women. And I was seeing stories about how women are turning away from Trump because of some latest outburst. uh, But the numbers among conservative women for Trump are still pretty strong. If the question is what percent of women who call themselves conservative vote for Donald Trump, is that the question? I mean, then then here this is a question of fractions are our friend, Um, that if you shrink the denominator, you can you can have quite a small numerator and still still have a big fraction. So Donald Trump will often talk about his support within the Republican Party. But it's worth remembering that when Ronald Reagan was president, about a third of Americans identified as Republican. And today, about a fifth of Americans identify as Republican. So Donald Trump may have a slightly higher percentage of the Republican Party behind him than Ronald Reagan did, but it was a much bigger group of people in those days. And it's better to have 80% of 33% than 90% of 20%. Yeah, you have these outlier groups, but they're ever more unrepresentative. There was an early exit poll after 2016 that purported to show that Donald Trump got 52% of the votes of all white women, both educated and less educated. And I lay out in the book the sophisticated polling reasons for believing that that, is, that figure, even in 2016, was not accurate. And basically the problem is that uh, there's a problem with exit polls, which is exit polls tend to oversample people who are willing to talk to exit pollsters. Now just imagine you've, you've voted you know, you've got a bunch of things to do that day and you emerge from the voting booth and someone stops you and says, may I have 10 minutes of your time for a questionnaire? The people who say yes are different from the people who say no. And when you sort of take apart the polls, the 52% number among white women cannot be true. It, it probably, on the other hand, it was probably was 48%, which is still better than he deserved. What is important to understand about Donald Trump voters is although he's had a pretty stable level of support in the low to mid 40s, those 43 to 45% or whatever it is, that's not his base. Those are not the people who stick with him thick and thin. Um, that The 45% that you see for Donald Trump in, in the figures is made up both of the people who really strongly believe in him and the people who are weakly committed to him or the people who are motivated by negative partisanship. That is, they don't love Donald Trump, but they hate the Democrats. When you look at the people who drift away, the people who drift away are especially women, the most educated of them first, the less educated among them second. In this pandemic. I think it's going to be a real problem for him with that group of women because women are overrepresented in the hospitality industries that have been most savagely hit by the pandemic. Uh, They are more likely to be in um, hotels and restaurants and travel. And and their household, their household employment situations are going to look very, very grim. And especially at the end of July, when the um, supplementary unemployment insurance Benefits um, fade out. Uh, the federal government passed in the United States a special $600 supplement to the often very inadequate unemployment benefits offered by the various states. When that runs out, I think you're going to see some real hardship and a lot of voting changes as a result of the hardship. You're seeing them already, but they, they're going to get more dramatic. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. 
By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. From following your career, I know that you've always been a real student of foreign policy. At one point in your book, you, you write, Trump will leave behind a country that is less admired. I don't dispute that. I'm wondering how much Americans now care about what the world thinks about them and whether that is part of the Trump phenomenon. You and I both come from Canada, which has an almost obsessive view toward monitoring the world's attentions towards us. Do you think that for many American voters, even if their country is reviled, have we gotten to a point where they don't really care about that? We have to be careful what we say about the voter. You know, democracy is like a... um, it's like an oracle that can really only answer questions yes or no. So the only things we you know, we have ways of getting at what people think, but it's not clear how meaningful those are. And it's not clear whether it's even intelligible to talk about, as the political scientists say, whether you can meaningfully aggregate opinion and, and speak of it in that way. But so with those cautions and caveats, let's a couple of things. One is when you poll, Americans do express concern for what other people think. What um, you can also observe this, that when the United States is contemplating going to war, whether or not it has allies is hugely important to public uh, support for the war. When the United States has many allies with it, Americans feel differently than when it has rather few. It certainly hurt George W. Bush um, politically that the United States operation in Iraq was not supported by all of America's traditional allies. Britain was there, to be sure, but um, uh, but other countries weren't, including Canada. And that, that bit into Bush's support. But here's where I think it really does show up. And we're in this global pandemic, and we don't have a global response. And the pandemic is worse, both as a disease and as an economic crisis, because the major market-minded democracies of the world are not working together, aren't even talking to one another very much. And so h- how do Americans feel about that? I don't know, but I, I have to imagine it's a, it's a problem. So, and certainly, people care about the results, and the results are worse when you don't cooperate. Last point on this. If what you want to do is constrain Chinese behavior as a touchstone of your foreign policy, and President Trump certainly talks about that a lot, and Trump supporters do, very important to be realistic about this. Back when I worked in the Bush administration, the American economy was about, which was only 20 years ago, the American economy was three times the size of the Chinese economy. Today, the two economies are running probably about neck and neck. Maybe the United States is still somewhat bigger, but not for long. The United States alone could in many ways check the behavior of the China of the year 2000. The United States alone cannot check the behavior of the China of 2020, and very much less so the the China that we probably will have in 2030. If the United States is going to impose rules on China, it's going to need friends. 
you have a section of your book which you devote to the theme of fascism. And just to be clear, you're not accusing the America of 2020 of being a fascist dictatorship. But you do talk about the fascistic streak that runs through a lot of the propaganda that you now see. One of the defining aspects of fascism historically has been warmongering. And yet, if you look at the current breed of right-wing populists who are sometimes accused of having fascistic streaks, uh, such as Orban in Hungary or uh, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and Trump himself, you know, aside from some saber-rattling against Iran and some weird rhetorical fusillades against North Korea, they don't really have any kind of systematic warmongering aspect to their propaganda. Is that something you find unusual? Fascism is both an enormously emotive word, but also a word that used to have kind of political science meaning. I mean, we can talk about movements in the past. Uh, we can look at the 1930s and see and and, de and debate to what extent was Franco a fascist, to what extent were uh, authoritarian parties in Romania and Hungary fascistic. And because it's far enough away, we can try to be kind of clinical about it. That That's harder now because the word also exists as a term of abuse and insult. There's something going on with these anti-democratic, authoritarian, xenophobic movements that has a family similarity to what happened in the 1930s, but also, as you say, is in important ways different. And it is for sure true that, I mean, fascistic movements in those days existed in a world of terrible material deprivation, a world in which people were very used to violence that, that you know, if you, if you were a Berliner in 1930 and you saw a dead body in the street, that was upsetting, obviously, but you or your son or father, you had been in the First World War and you had seen bodies everywhere. You, the dead body was not in itself such an unfamiliar sight. And it was strange to see it in a city seat, but you know, it, it was not as, so we live in a world in which violence is so unusual, so shocking that we are just much more sparing of it. So I try to talk about the ways in which these new movements that you see in Modi's India and Bolsonaro's Brazil, um, have a resemblance to those of the 1930s and in which they are different. And and then I I propose, and it's kind of clunky, um, the word fascioid, that just as if you remember your science that an alkaline, or you see a substance that's like an alkaline but isn't quite one, you call it an alkaloid. If you see in the sky an object that's like a planet but isn't quite one, you call it planetoid. Maybe these movements are fascioid. That is, they have points of similarity but also important points of difference with the fascism of the past. If you look at the societies that have been most successful in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. They are in different parts of the world, but they generally have in common that they are high trust societies. Uh, so New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, I mean, these have very different political systems. Even Sweden, even though it has this outlier approach, and actually the fatality rate there has been quite high, despite the plaudits from conservatives who note that it's been much more liberal about letting people uh, out of their homes and such, you've still had a lot of consensus in that society about the approach they've used. The United States, as you argue in the book, has become a low-trust society. Is it within the realm of, of a book author or a policy engineer to fix that? I travel in the United States sometimes, and I'm just shocked at the way trends like gated communities and the fact that people with a lot of money and very little money just don't live side by side anymore, or the tribalizing effect of social media. Do you despair at how some of these trends, it's just very difficult to engineer them from a policy response? 
to, to some extent, is fatalism warranted in regard to the low trust society that America has become? I'm sure you know the joke. How do you get 50 Canadians out of the swimming pool? And the punchline is, you showed all the Canadians get out of the swimming pool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've seen it through the COVID-19 pandemic in in our native Ontario, where the government's response has been, we're going to put a plate of peas in front of you. And we know you don't like peas. And actually, they're not very, they're from a can. They're not very good peas, but eat them. And people eat them. There isn't even that much complaining. Got to eat the peas. And of course, that doesn't happen in the United States. So I've written unfortunately only on Twitter, about this phenomenon where it may be that the United States is stumbling toward a let it rip approach to the pandemic because it can't do anything else. Your point about Sweden is very well taken. I've I've talked to people who have witnessed the pandemic response there, and they make the point that the Swedish response is not like the response you're seeing in the reopening American states. The Swedish response is to have very few formal rules, but then a lot of social advice about how to behave under the permissive rules. And Swedes followed the advice. So you don't need to, if you knew that everybody who goes into a shop would stand six feet apart and wear a mask and just generally comport themselves in a responsible way, you could close fewer shops. You close the shops because you can't trust the people to behave properly. So it's, Sweden does not look like the Florida beaches on spring break. The shops are open, but people are six feet apart and they're all wearing masks and they're all being careful because as you say, it's a high trust society. Um, the United States is not, has become less of one. And it is stumbling toward an approach I call basically take the punch, where President Trump is arguing for reopening. And he's counting on the thing that we have learned about the virus is that it's not an equal opportunity disease. And it's certainly not an equal opportunity killer. Uh, the, the casualties are being piled up where Donald Trump doesn't care about the people. And meanwhile, the economic losses are being felt among people whom Donald Trump does care about, small business owners especially. That's an interesting observation. And there are factors like this which went into the the resistance to Obamacare, the idea that, well, I like Social Security because people like me are getting it. Is there some similarity to that dynamic? There was a story that at the Tea Party rally, somebody held up a sign that said, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Ha ha, very stupid. There are photographs of people with that sign, but they all seem to be carrying it ironically. I'm not sure anybody ever carried the sign unironically. But, you know, if someone did, it isn't stupid. Who but the government will touch your Medicare? You know, it's not like armed robbers are going to break into the house and take your Medicare away. Only the government can touch it. And it is true that when uh, the Affordable Care Act was being discussed, one of the ways it was going to be financed originally was by cramping the future growth in Medicare. And so if you were somebody who was a Medicare beneficiary, or more importantly, soon to be a Medicare beneficiary, at a time, 2010, 2011, when the economy is very troubled, not crazy that you would be afraid that the government's proposal to be more generous to people younger than you would have an impact on your retirement planning. It was very striking during the Tea Party days that people in their 60s were much more hostile to Obamacare than people in their 70s and 80s. People who are about to qualify for Medicare were much more worried than people who are deep into Medicare. And I suppose if you're 80, you would think, well, he's talking about constraining the future growth of Medicare. How much future do I personally have? (laughs) I'm going to get eight more good years out of it. And after that, not my problem. Uh, Whereas someone who was 62 in 2010 might, might feel differently. I mean, a lot of the tension in the Obama and Trump years has been about the very particular anxieties, demands, and prejudices of the baby boom cohort, looking at age groups that are younger than them, that are very ethnically different from them, and saying, 
I want to keep what I have, even if it means burdening those who come after me, because they're not my children. They're the children of people I don't care about. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavored. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash quillette and use the code quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. I know that you and I had different ideas about Justin Trudeau uh, when he first ran to become prime minister. I will admit that some of your predictions have been worn out and Trudeau can be exasperating and smug. But do you look at Trudeau in Canada and maybe think, well, okay, Canada errs on the side of political correctness and conformism, certain aspects of which are embodied by Trudeau himself. But compared to the alternative, as, as Trump has shown, Canada has done pretty well. Like, has it given you a more generous view toward Justin Trudeau to see the disaster that's happened to politics in the United States? I think Canada has been more successful than the United States, for sure. It's sort of in the middle of the pack of global success. It hasn't done as well as New Zealand and Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, it's done better than the United States or Great Britain. Looks maybe like Germany. I think you have to give much of the credit, not to this, not to any one politician, but to the political system generally. I mean, Canada has, like the United States, big ideological divides, partisan divides between the federal government and the most important provincial governments. And yet they were able to overcome those differences and, and work together. And most strikingly, Canadians did not make culture war issues out of COVID signifiers. You know, left, right, center, if it's cold outside, you wear a coat. Uh, left, right, center, if there's an airborne pandemic, you wear a face mask. <laughs> Do you think that the regional and linguistic differences in Canada, which are more exacerbated in the United States, have, have oddly had a leavening effect on the culture war in the sense that there isn't just one big cleavage, there's cleavages in different dimensions, and that creates different coalitions? Okay, I, so I remember being at an event at the University of British Columbia 
four or five years ago. And I, I asked the students, I was with a group of graduate students at around a seminar table, why did they think that Canada had been so much less susceptible to the authoritarian populist movements that were then really on the rampage, not only in Great Britain and the United States, but in France and in those days um, looking very powerful even in Germany, the most stable country in Europe. And uh, so I asked the students around the table and, and they came up, their answers tended to converge around really one idea. And they said, the reason uh, Canada has been exempt because we're more awesome than other people. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, you're, you're all political scientists. So if, <laughs> if, if your answer is because we're awesome, that's not a very political science-y answer. <laughs> but Canada has had periods of explosive authoritarian populism in its own past, in the 1930s, in the Prairie Provinces, in the 1950s, in, in Quebec. You know, Quebec separatism in the 1960s and 70s was a movement was tinged by actual outright murderous terrorism. So Canada has not been exempt. So your explanation of what is different about Canada, I think, needs to be very time specific. It's certainly true that Canada has handled the challenges of the 21st century better than the United States, even if it handled the challenges of the 1930s in many ways worse than the United States. We need an answer that doesn't go like too deep, but is more time specific. And I, I say, so I, when I say, what are the differences? I mean, part of it is the Canadian political system still has competition for the middle, rather than, as in the United States, you have these kind of twin mobilizations of the extremes. The Canadian political system has a more functionally divided federalism. I think Canada benefits from having had true civil servants, true civil service that is able to meet the day-to-day -day problems of governance more effectively in the United States. You're a government that comes in and you say, I want to do this or that. How would I do it? You have people who can tell you whether this or that can be done. And if it can be done, that they have some ability to, to get it done. I mean, you compare the distribution of small business relief in Canada uh, in the pandemic crisis to what to the absolute shambles in the United States. And that that is very much about the effectiveness of the civil service. It's also the effectiveness of the banking system. When you have a few big banks, it's it's easier to put money fast into people's bank accounts uh, than it is when you have hundreds of banks um, and quasi-banks and non-banks as you do in the United States. See, this is the weird thing about what happened in 2008 when there were a lot of Canadians, including conservatives, who went from down with the giant banking oligopoly to hooray for the giant banking oligopoly. Like everything in life, it has pluses and minuses. So if, if your goal if you say, well, today what we're thinking, the question is, how do we have a really vibrant startup culture? Well, the giant banking oligopoly is not so so good for that. I remember back in the 1990s, there was a joke in Silicon Valley. The thing that made the United States great was it was the only country on earth where you could borrow $100 million even if you didn't own a suit. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, okay. So, but what oligopoly does do is if you say, I want to get $800 into every bank account in the country by tomorrow. You can do that in Canada more effectively than you can do it in the United States. So I hate to disappoint listeners by migrating away from Canadian bank regulation, but uh, <laughs> you you once aptly said that a lot of the discussion on, on Quillet and certain other websites often feels like a discussion about discussions. It's one reason I don't want to dwell too much on social media, because criticism of social media answers to the same description. But it's, it's impossible to talk about Trump without talking about Twitter, because so much of his popularity and infamy is based on his ability to short circuit the mainstream media. As we're having this conversation, this is in flux, because, as you know, some of Trump's tweets, they weren't deleted by Twitter, but they were flagged in this way that suggested 
correctly that they contained either a misinformation or glorification of violence. Trump took the bait and now is proposing, I believe that's through executive order, changes to legislation or effective changes to legislation that would increase the liability for social media companies and could theoretically kill the social media business model because there aren't enough lawyers in the world to look over the libel claims. This is a blue sky question, but if Twitter and maybe even Facebook came offline in America tomorrow, do you think that would have a positive effect on the political dynamic? Facebook in particular does many, many wonderful things. It keeps us all in touch. It allows grandparents to see pictures of their grandchildren. Instagram may be even better. I think it's pretty clear that in the strictly political sense, Facebook's impact has been nothing but bad. Who would have predicted uh, that one of the consequences of the rise of social media would be the return of infect preventable infectious diseases? Uh, but I, I think when you're looking at why do we have measles today and we didn't have measles in 1998, the answer is Facebook. Uh, there, there have always been people who thought crazy things about vaccines. Before Facebook, they were isolated. And although they might not believe they were crazy themselves, they knew that all their neighbors thought they were crazy. And they had to behave themselves, you know, looking over their shoulders, like, if I say this, all my neighbors will think I'm crazy. Facebook brought the, all the crazy people together into a global community of craziness, and it empowered them allowed them to recruit and by the way, and allowed them to harass doctors and harass, harass parents who preferred not to be exposed, have their children exposed to measles. But we're not going to uninvite Facebook and Trump's talk is just as so often with him vaporware. The relevant provisions that he's dealing with are statutes, not presidential regulations. They would have to be amended by Congress. Um, and Facebook has done uh, an exemplary job of corrupting Congress to meet its demands. And and by the way, Facebook's political program has been extraordinarily helpful to Republicans and especially to Trump. Um, their their top political guy is a and is an alumnus like me of the Bush White House, and he has been very sensitive to the political concerns of the Trump administration, especially ensuring that there are no limits to the false things you can say on Facebook. Which is so weird because here at Quillette, we have run articles by at least one former Facebook engineer who describes the internal political culture within the Facebook workforce as being suffocatingly progressive. Uh, so that's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a huge paradox. It's there. also a profoundly amoral company in a low margin business that relies on mass. So if Facebook's costs went up even slightly, Facebook as a company, would its profits would vanish. Um, it is not a hugely lucrative company on a, on a per ad basis. Whatever the company's attitudes, the company's culture is a profoundly amoral one, and it depends on keeping costs down by not reviewing what it says. Uh, so that that could mean as, as something as simple as it is under Facebook's present policy, it would be permissible for the Trump campaign to target every black voter in America and send them a targeted uh, message giving them false information about voting day and where their precinct was, pushing them away from the polls. It's Facebook, at least as it's now constituted, would have no rule preventing you from telling, identifying these are all the black voters and just tell them that the they're voting in the next precinct over. And when they get there, they'll be in a line. And then when they get to the head of the line, they'll be in the wrong place and it'll be too late. Ha ha ha, they can't vote. But they're part of the modern world. So we have to figure out, we have to figure out protocols to deal with them. But what Trump is just doing is having a temper tantrum and to a slight degree trying to intimidate Twitter into backing off and scoring a symbolic victory over Twitter. 
It's always important to keep in mind, though, that Donald Trump, when he does things, is not always acting strategically. And my, one of my favorite quotes about him is from a former aide of his who said, uh, he's not playing three-dimensional chess. Most of the time, he's eating the pieces. In Canada, your political brand is conservative, full stop. In the United States, where you've lived for many years and where you're a citizen, your brand is a little bit more complicated. You were a prominent dissenter from certain establishment GOP trends back in the George W. Bush days. And now, again, you're a prominent critic of the Republican establishment, such as it is under Trump. Is this your role going forward as a sort of permanent opposition party within the American conservative movement? Your question is just not one I think about. There are, there are a lot of reasons that writer's block can, can happen. But the most common and the most damaging is that the person sits at the keyboard and suddenly becomes intensely aware of themselves sitting at the keyboard and thinks, here am I, David Fromm, at the keyboard. What would I, what should I, David Fromm, what should I say about this? And the way you overcome the writer's block is by completely forgetting about yourself and just seeing the problem, the question, connecting with the thing you want to say, and then removing yourself as a personality as much as you can from the process and just it being at one with the question, pure, your pure, deepest self in connection with the pure, deepest problem that you're worried about. And then people will react to it as people are going to react to it. And people will say about you the things that people are going to say. And you can't control it. It's not worth worrying about. And all it will do is prevent you from doing the work. I have profound connections and commitments to my wife, to my children, uh, to the places in which I live, to the Prince Edward County where I spend so much time and where I expect I'll someday be buried, to the political system of the United States to which I committed myself by the bond of voluntary citizenship and where I pay my taxes and where I'm involved. And then everything else is just not my problem. And, and any self-assessment you do is bound to be wrong because if we think about yourself, your vanity will just blind you. You, you, you never see yourself as you ought to be seen. Because even if you have a negative assessment, you still tend to overstate your importance in the scheme of things. So even a negative assessment is too vain. So I just do my work, put it on the table, and hope it's meaningful to somebody else. David Frum's new book is called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. It was published on May 5th. Thank you for joining the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.